Bhagwan. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? It's your Tucker Buddy. Yes, who? Janet and James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent April 25th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Welcome and bienvenue to Janet and Ramcharan, the podcast. How you doing, folks? <clears throat> Glad to be here with you. If you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, this is a show where I speak about myself in hopes to relate to yourself, the viewer, the listener, you know, shared experiences, kindred souls, best friends forever, and much needed, especially during this time of quarantine, you know, I'm like, I'm down the old rabbit hole, just locked up. You know, I feel like the wall's caving in on me sometimes, you know? I got this scruff, this fucking man scruff growing across my fucking face. And these fucking goat whiskers. Got this fucking afro going on. This voodoo child fucking head sweatband just trying to rope it all back. Little hands are in my brain. You know, the morning's dead. And the day is too. There's nothing here but the velvet moon. I'm like restless, you know, and start getting that like primitive, primordial feeling. Like I could feel like my ancestor. I could feel like my grandfather just like creeping back up in my fucking soul, right? The walls cave it in on me. You know, going ape tit. I'm going Wuhan batshit crazy. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to make it. So if you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, I am an actor extraordinaire. 19 years of service, diploma in theater arts. That's being to the bone, ladies and gentlemen, and damn proud of it. As I mentioned, you know, quarantined, confined to myself, but, um... I'm also taking refuge in some of the great streaming services online at the moment, most notably Netflix. Now I know I'm, I'm like many people. I don't like to be a cattle. I don't like to be a herd. I don't like to just go with the flow, right? I don't like to be a fucking sheep, you know? You know? Right? I don't like to be just like a fucking goat, you know, a cattle, a part of the herd, just doing whatever the dummies tell you, right? Like, you know, pop culture. But um, I'm telling you, like, the myths are legendary. The hype is for real, man. Netflix. Just banging it out with the content. Any genre you could like, you know, like... History, nature shows, um, crime documentaries, comedies, stand-up comedy, dramas, the whole kit and caboodle, man, they're rocking with it. And um, the latest uh, piece of entertainment that I indulged in as of late, Uncut Gems. 
Uncut Gems, starring Adam Sandler, directed by the Safdie brothers. Safdie, Safdie brothers, you know, Uncut Gems. It's amazing. Um, I found it real inspirational as an actor, you know. It's nice to watch films that inspire the mind, inspire your, your creativity, and, um, you know, motivate you, you know, make you want to be better at what you do, you know, and, um, and just in general, like as an audience member, it's just like pure entertainment. If you're into like gritty, dark, uh, suspenseful, character-driven uh, cinema, film, um, definitely check out Uncut Gems on Netflix. And coincidentally, one of the stars of the film, Eric Bogosian. Eric Bogosian, well-known actor, writer, monologuist. He's well-known for his plays, talk radio, suburbia, um, his one-man shows he's well-known for. Coincidentally, when I was a young actor, thespian extraordinaire, circa 2005, I was in college. And a couple buddies of mine, we decided to produce one of his stage plays, Pounding Nails in the Floor with My Forehead. And in order to do that, we had to pay for the rights, the rights to produce the show for a limited run. So once we were in communication with the publisher of the play and we paid for the staging rights, Eric Bogosian himself sent us a very kind email. Hey, uh, crew, uh, congratulations on, you know, your pursuit of, um, you know, theater expression X, Y, and Z. And thank you very much for taking interest in my work and um, all the best with your production. I'm like, wow, that really stood out. You know, Eric Bogosian, a well-known playwright actor, took the time to send us this very kind email. And that always stuck with me through the years. That was pretty cool of him. And you can see him in Uncut Gems on Netflix. It's a banger. And aside from that, what I'm doing to keep myself uh, fit as a thespian, um, one thing which is transferable across industry, health, right? So I'm doing my best to eat right, stay fit, work out, exercise, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, push-ups, sit-ups, skipping rope, going for quarantine jogs, you know, mask on the face, <laughs> running through the park, right? You know, and doing all that due diligence. And also, there's method to my madness, you know. I'm studying, re-upping some of my um, knowledge, in certain areas and aspects of the craft of acting. And I ain't going to tell you that. You know, I'm not going to give away my secret recipe. You know, I'm like the Colonel Sanders of, uh, you know, shit fast food acting. You know, I'm not going to give away my 39 herbs and spices. But, you know, I've been studying due diligently. And, you know, I'm, I'm keeping my mind focused for when this economy, world pandemic... When everything reopens and we get back to normal, I'm going to be there with it. And um, that's relatable across industry. Whatever you do, keep your head up. Keep your eyes on the prize. Moving forward.
Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, actor extraordinaire. I'm also an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking three plus years of continuous consecutive sobriety. Coronavirus, COVID-19, it's really bringing um, people's health, mortality, um, wellness, well-being. It's really bringing that to the forefront of people's minds. It's funny. We live in a world where um, we're so concerned with keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with appearances, climbing that social economic ladder that sometimes we lose we lose focus of what's truly important like our health right you know we spend you know exorbitant exorbitant um astronomical amounts of money leasing cars we can't afford mortgaging houses that we can't afford buying designer clothing that we can't afford just the gratuitous, like obscene, gluttonous consumerism that is like a plague on Western society. And it's really in the global mindset, you know, the ego of the human being, myself, right? Everybody's got to shine. But this pandemic's bringing it into focus where it's like, we are forced to face our health. And I think any reasonable person during this pandemic is taking stock of their health and having the appreciation for something as simple as just well-being. And as a recovering alcoholic, like I'm definitely glad that that is something I have been cherishing these past three plus years of sobriety because when I was out there drinking and smoking and, you know, token, like, I didn't feel my health was my own. I didn't feel in control of my health. Who is really in control of their health? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I, don't, I can't predict the future. I'm not in control of my health, but I mean, I wasn't helping. I wasn't helping my health. I was smoking, drinking, eating fast food. And today that's what I'm very grateful for, where it's like, my health is my own. I maintain it, you know? Like, I can't control and predict the future, but I know that I'm doing my best to maintain it. And that's what I'm very thankful for today as a recovering alcoholic. And it definitely reminds me during this time of pandemic just how fortunate I am to be able to wake up without a hangover, without throwing up, without the anxiety of needing another drink. I'm very grateful for that today. And all of that um, lends support to my overall health, you know? My mental state, my immune system, my muscles, you know, um, you know, all that. And if you're out there during pandemic and you're looking for, you're looking to 
reinvest in your health and reinvest in yourself in a meaningful way, what I would do is suggest to you, try 12-step recovery. Now, at the moment, 12-step recovery, like meetings, attending meetings, that's on hiatus, obviously, because of like uh, social distancing. But there are like online applications, Zoom, Zoom, Z0M, that's what I was about to say, Z-O-O-M, Zoom. Uh, You could check out Zoom. That's like an online streaming service where people are streaming meetings. You know, you can catch a virtual meeting. But once everything goes back to normal, 12-step recovery, what it is is basically group therapy. You attend these meetings of your own timetable, of your own will. There's no dues, no fees, no emphasis on God or religion. Nobody's interested in your personal beliefs. It's purely about recovery. You attend these meetings and um, you come out of your isolation because alcoholism is very isolating, self-centered, self-absorbed behavior. You come out of your isolation, you get reintegrated into society in a meaningful way, and day by day your days add up, and then one day you find yourself in a new day. And it's a blessing, you know, like, um, you know, I... I feel vital. I feel alive. I don't get that, you know, anxious panic, waking up in a cool pool of sweat, <sighs> you know, needing a drink, uh, gassed out feeling, just depleted, hazy, fucking charcoal lungs from chain smoking, smoking that la 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 all night, you know, like I feel vital, you know, and that's the gift of recovery. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, alcoholic. I am also a janitor. Yeah, I'm talking mop buckets, slop buckets, toilets, tampons, urinals, urinal cakes, parking garages, organic waste bins, garbage bins, recycle bins, the whole kit and caboodle, ladies and gentlemen. God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. God made dirt and dirt bust your ass. I'm a motherfucking janitor. I push a little mop bucket. I dip the mop in the mop water. Then I mop the floor. You know, washing windows like an asshole. Push a garbage trolley. You know, vacuuming. Plunging a toilet. Ah, you fucking. Ah, you You know, plunging a toilet like a fucking animal you know janitor baby hallelujah and uh you know as to the previous episode um i am currently uh facing a potential layoff at work um that's something that's been coming down the pike sorry squeaky chair that's that's something that's been coming down the pike uh Potential layoff, but I practice what I preach. I'm accountable um, mentally, physically, financially, the whole kit and caboodle. I'm accountable. So come what may, um, fire, rain, storm, hail, sleet, snow, you know, skin of marinky dinky do, whatever the fuck it is, I'm going to handle it and I'm going to move forward to the new day. And, um, you know, 
And if you're also like me out there and you've been working very hard and look at this whole situation as an opportunity because, you know, as I mentioned, I am an actor, performer, and what my janitorial hustle does is it provides me a steady income because what they fail to tell you about the performing world is um, unless you make it, you're pretty much just a loser. You know, like the whole struggling artist thing, sleeping on couches, scrounging for a meal, living in men's shelters, drinking all day, begging for a handout. Like all that shit's romantic. But unless you make it, you're just pretty much a washed up has-been hack loser scumbag scumbucket. You know, motherfuck it. And, you know, it's just not a good look. But having a nine to five hustle pays for my pursuit in the performing world. Um, there ain't no handouts, you know, you got to do it for yourself. You got to get the gig. And a lot of times that just takes stability, money, a continual effort to move forward, move forward, move forward against the resistance. And that's where, you know, a stable income helps, you know? So that's why I'm grateful to be a janitor. But at the end of the day, um, I am moving towards my career um, as a performer. So there's a great difference between a career and a job, right? So if you're out there and you're like me, working towards your career, and you know, you're finding that during this pandemic, you're coming up against like, oh no, job insecurity, job instability. Well, maybe it's a blessing. Maybe it's a blessing to shake the tree, you know, shake away the dead debris and um, move on to a new day, move on to a new opportunity. And that's really how I'm looking at this situation. Um, and I extend that to anybody out there. All y'all motherfuckers. Like, uh, you can't, you know, you can't, you know, we can't worry about the future because what we really have as the Buddhist monks and as the Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and as the Christians, as, as any real spiritual person knows, you know, what we really have is the now. And granted, the now sucks, you know, like it's a straight up molesting. It's a dumpster fire, right? 2020, it's like eating a shit sandwich, man. It's like cock beaten, fucking down and out, fucking down in the dumps, fucking douchebag, fucking roll the dice. That's for damn sure. But what we really have at this moment is the now. So let's hold on to it can enjoy it and move forward. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, janitor. And last of all, I am a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. 11 years of service. Um, what I'm dealing with at the moment is um, much like what I spoke on in regards to acting and what I spoke on regards to um, janiteering, janitorial custodial work. Um, it's all really up in the air. But what I do have is an amazing podcast that I thank you very much for listening to, Jonathan Ramcher and the podcast. You can get it on um, iTunes, Spotify. You can download it directly from my website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. So I'm focusing on that. 
And um, I'm focusing on what I can be in control of during these uncertain times. Um, Writing, material, mental health, physical health. Um, Yeah, that's what I'm focusing on. The things that I can focus on. The things that I can affect, right? Instead of getting all bogged down with the negativity, the negativity is going to be there. So there ain't no need to sweat it. And, you know, a part of me doesn't even believe that. (laughs) Part of me is like, oh, my God, I need to get on stage. Ah, ah." Right? Please, please, please. You know? But that's the cry of the uh, artist. You know? You know? A fucking butterfly's got to fly. A fucking shit has to be shat. A fucking tire has to be inflated a fucking comedian has to fucking spit a couple jokes and um all in due time nothing to sweat do connect with me on the aforementioned uh platforms itunes spotify youtube jonathan-ramcharan.com uh you know and uh more to come Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, stand-up comedian. And those are the four things that sum me up at the moment. Jonathan Ramcharan, actor, alcoholic, janitor, stand-up comedian. So, welcome to the show. Yeah. Ooh-wee-oo. Fucking coronavirus, COVID-19. Oh, my God. I'm sick of this shit. We haven't seen anything like this since the Spanish flu, 1918. No one knows what the fuck happened in 1918. Those idiots didn't have the internet. They weren't making notes and counting figures and shit. Those assholes didn't even know how not to go to war with the world. Wasn't that like the end of World War II? You know? Or the beginning of it? When was World War II? 1914 to 1918? No, that was World War I. I don't know. That's another thing. You're supposedly smart if you know every little thing there is about war. Why are you smart if you know everything about war? Doesn't that make you like a morbid sadist? You know? I gotta find out how people kill people. I gotta find out how everybody kills each other. You're not smart just because you read something in a book about how somebody murdered somebody. Alright? So whatever. 1914 to 1918. 1912 to 1932. I don't know when World War I started. The point Just because the Spanish flu happened in 1913 to 1918, or whenever that happened, they were just making up stats and statistics. So don't bring that into the pandemic of fucking 2019, COVID-19. They didn't know their fucking asshole from their elbow back in them days. Not unlike these days, but you know what I'm saying. Basically put, I'm sick of being quarantined. I'm feeling like a monkey. You know, I'm, I'm fucking climbing the walls going Wuhan batshit crazy. I'm sorry, folks. But I, I think you understand. You're feeling me. But it's like you can't escape this fucking coronavirus fucking dick beating. You know, here we go here. Here's the latest stats. COVID-19 stats worldwide. Yes. So, according to wikipedia.com, 
Worldwide, there are a confirmed 2.83 million confirmed cases. 2.83 million confirmed cases worldwide. 798,000 confirmed recovered cases worldwide. And 198,000 confirmed deaths worldwide. So those are the current stats of coronavirus, COVID-19. Hmm. Donald Trump, fake news, okay? Here's what you want to do in case of um, COVID-19 emergency. What you want to do is you want to take a bottle of um, Lysol and just like inject it into your main artery. And um, that's going to protect you against coronavirus, okay? Kung flu, Chinese virus, okay? There's nothing you can do but drink Windex, okay? Everybody get a bottle of Windex and drink it directly. He's catching fire from like the World Health Organization and the world in general. Trump making some bonehead. Apparently, he called it sarcastic remarks in regards to like ingesting, injecting, cleaning products, getting plenty of sunlight as ways to combat uh, the coronavirus. So, you know, you even got these world leaders losing their fucking marbles during this time. You know, if you thought I'm going fucking dummy, dumb, dumb, dumb. Look at the fucking world stage. Nobody knows dick all. <laughs> the, the information is pretty much the same regurgitated information that they've been spouting for like the last couple months. Wash your hands. Cough etiquette. Social distance. The coronavirus um, mainly affects the elderly and people with pre-existing health conditions. 80% of people recover without any special sort of medical attention so it's really all the same horse shit repackaged and respouted and regurgitated upon our fucking heads 24 7 and these stupid fucking news cycles and i'm sick of it but anyway you know that's what we're dealing with um and you know the nice part of it is though like it's giving people a chance to step back and connect with themselves, their family, the meaning of life. You know what I mean? And, you know, that's definitely what I've been doing. Now, prior to um, life gets busy, right? So in the, in the past, I would say in the past year, um, I've been busy as a janitor, as an actor, as a stand-up comedian, you know, trying to get work as an actor, you know, um, producing my own stand-up comedy shows, getting out there, doing mics, producing the podcast. Life gets busy. And there was a book that I had been reading that um, kind of got out of my grip as life got busy. This is a book that I find very, very interesting. Um, philosophy. The Basics. Uh-oh, there's a little bit of a lighting issue there. Philosophy, The Basics. This is um, a book by Nigel Warburton. And it's on the basics of philosophy. So that's what I'm kind of dipping into during this pandemic season. Getting back to recharging my mind. And 
coincidentally, the book, and I'll, put, and I'll post some information on it, but the book, uh, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton, it's a concise um, breakdown of the basics of philosophy. Some of the basic questions being, um, I'll read from the back here, um, and this is a book you can get on like uh, Amazon, if y'all want to read along with me at home. This is a book you can get from Amazon uh, for like, it was under $30. I think it was like $22 or something. You can order it from Amazon. But I'll read you the back. Knowledge begins with the basics. Philosophy, the basics, deservedly remains the most recommended introduction to philosophy on the market. Warburton is a patient, accurate, and above all, clear. There is no better short introduction to philosophy. And um, each chapter considers a key area of philosophy, explaining and exploring the basic ideas and themes, including how do we know right from wrong? How do we know right from wrong? I don't know. Seriously, how do we know right from wrong? We deal with it on a daily basis. Look at Donald Trump. You know? Okay, here's what you want to do, folks. You want to ingest Lysol and Windex up your asshole and go out and suntan and that's gonna you know save you from the kung flu chinese virus okay how do we know right from wrong you know we're listening to our world leaders just saying shit how do we know right from wrong that's a great philosophical a philosophical question how do we know right from wrong how should we treat non-human animals you know how should we treat animals you know during coronavirus food is scarce should we just eat anything should you eat your pet hamster you know social distancing it's hard to meet somebody you know during these times what about the youth what about these funky fired up sex charged you know, youthful motherfuckers out there. Should we be fucking animals? You know? So these are great questions. How should we treat non-human animals? What are the limits of free speech? Should I even be talking about fucking animals? You know what I mean? What are the limits of free speech? Do we know how science works? Well, obviously we do. Okay? On a scientific level, what you do is you drink a gallon of bleach. And that will ward off uh, herpes, anal warts, coronavirus, etc. Okay, anal bleaching. Do we know how science works? That's a good question. What the hell is science? Is your mind different from your body? Yeah. Because, like, think about it. You imagine something in your head, you get aroused, and then you masturbate. Where did the masturbation come from, the mind or the body? You know, is your mind different from your body? Can you define art? Can you define it? What do you call this? Am I an artist or am I just a has-been hack, washed-up, lousy, low-down, shiftless, good-for-nothing, rotten crummies, bubble guppy? Like, what the fuck is this? Is this art? Ugh. So these are all questions covered in um, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. 
And coincidentally, during this time of pandemic, the first chapter, which I'm going to break down for y'all here, is one philosophical question which has haunted mankind since the dawn of the scrotum. Can you prove God exists? Can you prove God exists? You know, that's a major argument. People throughout history, throughout time, in time, these times. These are questions we think of. And there are many different arguments outlined in the book by Nigel Warburton, Philosophy, The Basics. One of the main arguments that we all pretty much know on some level is the design argument. The design argument. And what the design argument more or less entails is when you look out there in the world, um, there's evidence of... Pardon moi. <clears throat> See? Like that, that burp there is is evidence of the design argument. As a human being, I drink something. It gives me a little bit of internal gas. And in order to keep my body functioning, by no thought or choice of my own, I burp. <coughs> you know? <clears throat> That's the design argument. It's like everything bears evidence of being designed. You know? Much like a watch. Right? When you look at a watch, you know, classic Casio timepiece, when you look at a watch, there, there's evidence of a design, you know? Um, this is a digital watch, but like, you know, like one of those old clocks, you know, like Geppetto made or whatever and Pinocchio, like with the gears and all that shit, like a watch, when you look at it, it bears evidence of a design, the way every little meticulous piece fits together. So that's the design argument. When you look at the world, there's evidence, you know, like I burp. Oh, that's a design. Or when you look at the human eye and the intricacy of it, all the little capillaries and all the little, um, you know, eyelashes and the iris and the eyelid and, you know, all that stuff, man. Like it bears evidence of a design, right? Well, there's a contradiction to that argument. The contradiction is, um, well, uh, yes, everything bears evidence of being designed, but it's kind of a weak analogy, right? Like one thing isn't like the other. Like just because you can look at a watch and say, oh, that bears evidence of being designed. Like, oh, look at this watch. Look at the wristband. Oh, look how it's obviously been designed. Well, the contradiction being, well, that's kind of a weak way to describe life. Like, yeah, a watch bears evidence of being designed, but can you really use that as the same analogy when it comes to, like, the intricacies of, like, botany? You know, you look at a marijuana plant, like, oh, gee, how did that get designed? Is it really the same thing, a watch and a marijuana plant, you know? So, like, there's that kind of contradiction. And it really doesn't prove an all-powerful, all-knowing God. That's like one of the criticisms of the design argument. It really don't prove that because, well, there are a lot of flaws in the designs on the planet, right? Like 
For example, the eye, as I mentioned, the eye, while it is very intricately designed to function, it also has a lot of weak points. You get cataracts. Um, as you age, you lose your vision, you know? Marijuana plants, sometimes you get some skunk fucking dank weed that don't get you that high. I don't know. I haven't smoked weed in a minute, but like, you know, like some weed is less potent than others, you know? So it's like there's, there's flaws in the design argument, right? So that's food for thought. Another argument in regards to does God exist is the fine-tuning argument. And what that's about is um, what are the chances that the world came about of its own accord? Like, what are the chances? That's the fine-tuning argument. It's just like, okay, boom. The world. Like, whoa. Like, what are the chances of, of that all coming together perfectly? What are the chances that, you know, the human body can function properly? Animals, plant life, uh organisms, bacteria, viruses, the Chinese flu, Kung flu. Like, what are the chances all these things work? What are the chances that an ecosystem can feed itself and work kind of collectively? Like, what are the chances, right? So that's the fine-tuning argument. What are the chances of everything coming together? But the contradiction, the criticism of the fine-tuning argument is, um, well, just because things seem improbable doesn't mean that they don't happen. Like, for example, a lottery. You know, you play a state's lottery. You play a nationwide lottery. What are the chances that you're going to win the jackpot? Well, someone usually wins. And no matter how improbable, it doesn't mean things don't happen. Like, for example, with the coronavirus, everybody's going Wuhan, Wuhan, batshit crazy over like, oh, my God, this person caught the Wuhan virus, the Chinese Kung flu. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, my God. Is this thing more serious than we thought it was? Well, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. While improbable that a young, healthy person will catch the coronavirus, it does happen, you know? And 80% of people who catch it recover without any special treatment. Well, there's still 20% of people that need that extra treatment. So while the odds sometimes are stacked against certain situations, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So that's the criticism, that's the criticism of the fine-tuning argument. The, the argument being like, oh, what are the chances the world was created perfectly. Well, as improbable as it may seem, sometimes motherfuckers hit the lottery. Ka-ching, right? So there's that argument. Um, another argument for does God exist is the um, first cause argument. First cause argument. And that is that um, the universe exists and something caused it. Like, the universe exists, meaning something caused it to exist. Right? Okay. 
you could follow that argument. Like, it's kind of logical. One thing leads to another. You know, first cause argument. Something caused the universe. Okay, well, the contradiction and the criticism there is, well, what caused God? Right? If the universe, if God caused the universe, well, what caused God? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Tell me, motherfucker, tell me! All right? So there's that argument, and there's that criticism, first cause. And another criticism of that is, okay, well, one thing leads to another. Something caused the universe. Okay, that may or may not be proof that God exists, but, you know, you can't really go back, like, you know, Time is on a continuum. It's almost like infinity. It's like you'll never have a larger number. You'll never have an infinite number because you can always add one to that. Infinity plus one to infinity plus one and beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would say. You can always add one to an infinity. So going backwards, it's the same deal where it's like this strange continuum of infinity. It's like... How do you go back to the first cause? Who knows where the fuck that started? Right? It's a mind fuck. So there's that argument. Then there's the ontological argument. If you want to argue with me here. The ontological argument. And that is the attempt to show the existence of God follows from the definition of God as the supreme being. So, okay, there's the... Uh, in their argument, the ontological argument, well, God exists because God is the supreme being. That's their argument, you know? And while that that is like the cornerstone of a lot of having grown up Christian myself, that is what a lot of people would argue. How do you know God exists? Because God exists. Yeah, but I want to know how I can make it real to me, like in my heart, in my mind. Like, how do I know God is real? How do I know God exists? Because God exists. <laughs> That's more or less the ontological argument. God is the supreme being, right? And... That's the contradiction. That's the criticism. People go, okay, well, just because you say something exists doesn't mean it necessarily exists. Like, we can all imagine something that exists. Um, the argument Nigel Burton, Warburton, the argument he uses here for that criticism is, okay, we can all imagine a perfect island, right? There's a perfect island out there in the ocean, Perfect animals, perfect weather, perfect fruit, perfect uh, harem of stranded Sports Illustrated models in their bikinis, wanting nothing but to play with your balls 24-7. Like, we can all imagine a perfect island, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean it exists, right? So that's like almost the laughable criticism of the ontological argument. God is the supreme being. Okay, but just because you say that doesn't necessarily mean it exists. So, you know, there's the ontological argument. 
And also a part of that as well is existence is not a property. That's another argument to the ontological, another criticism of the ontological argument. Existence is not a property. One of the examples they use is like, um, okay, bachelors exist, right? Well, that kind of makes some sense to a degree because we know that there are men who are unmarried. In order for bachelors to exist, it is known that men exist, like a male bachelor. We know that males exist. So it's a logical step to say, okay, bachelors exist because a bachelor is an unmarried male. Well, we know that males exist. The pre-existing prerequisite for bachelors is man. We know man exists. But existence is not a property. So to say that, well, how do we know God exists? Because God is the supreme being. Well, existence is not a property. You know, we don't know that God exists. We don't know, right? That's where faith, belief, your own personal system of commitment, that's where all that comes into play. For example, I am a believer. Before I go too much further down this line, I am a believer in sorts, but I'll get to that. So existence is not a property. So that's another criticism of the ontological argument. Okay, you guys taking notes, by the way? There's going to be an exam at the end of this podcast. Um, and you're going to have to pay for it, too. So um, if you want to make a donation to the exam of Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, just send your donations into that's Jonathan. <clears throat> All right. So those are some of the main arguments, you know, about whether God exists. The design argument, you know, everything bears evidence of a of being designed, the design argument. Then there's the fine-tuning argument, which is, you know, what are the chances that the world just came into existence? What are the chances? The fine-tuning argument. Then you got first cause. Well, something caused the universe, the first cause argument. Then you got the ontological argument. God is the supreme being. Ontological argument. All right. So those are some of the arguments about whether or not God exists. Well, a lot of times there's the contradiction to that, where it's like, okay, well, what about evil? <laughs> evil. How do you explain evil? Right? That's a lot of, um, that's a big question in the search for belief in God. We question. Okay, if God exists, well, how do you explain evil? Why is this such a fucking dog, dick, beaten, fucking shit sandwich existence? Yo, why are we getting fucking, fucking booty raped at every fucking turn, right? Okay, well, you know, we have different types of evil. We have moral evil, right? Which is basically human evil, humankind evil. The things that we do to each other in this world. War, torture, rape, murder, um, extortion, stealing, financial ruin, like moral evil. 
You know, we have moral evil. Then we also have natural evil. That is like, um, you know, earthquake, famine, natural disaster, hurricanes, things of that nature. You know, natural evil. So how do you explain evil in this world? And where's God in relation to that? Okay. Well, some people can argue that, okay, well, how do we... Some of the arguments for, like, why evil exists... Okay, for example, saintliness. Evil exists in order to show a sharp contrast, a sharp contrast. You know, it's like, okay, if there wasn't for evil, then we wouldn't have the sharp contrast of saint, saintliness. All the Mother Teresa's, Gandhi's, you know, um, Tupac Shakur's, all these motherfuckers that, like, show this saint-like morality in the face of evil. You know, it's like saintliness points out our heroes and it guides us to a higher human moral. That's the purpose of evil, to highlight the good, right? To show us that there are higher levels of moral existence, right? Well, the contradiction to that is, well, like, well, it's unbalanced and it's in large part, um, it's in large part um, unrecorded. You know what I mean? Like, how do we even know the good that people do? It's almost like um, to, com to be compared as, you know, you know, nine out of 10 people might say good morning to you with a smile. But that one in 10 motherfucker that just like gives you a dirty look and slams the door in your face, doesn't hold the door for you when you guys are like walking through a door, they just give you that dirty look and let the door slam on you, you know? It's that one in 10 aspect where it's like a lot of the good that people do in this world, it's kind of unrecorded. It's kind of just out there in the ether, unfortunately not making much of an impact. It's usually the bad deeds that stay in people's mind. The Holocaust, um, genocide, you know, uh, you know, things of that nature that really tear into the soul of mankind. And also, like, who's to say that a world with less saints and less heroes wouldn't be preferred. Like, if you had the choice between, okay, let's get rid of evil, like, just the basic evil of the world, we'll get rid of it. That means that there's not going to be as many saints, not as many Mother Teresas, not as many Bugs Bug Bunnies, not as many fucking Elmer Fudds, like the things that make people happy, the heroes. There's not going to be as many of those, but there's not going to be that much evil in general. Who's to say that wouldn't be more preferable? Right? Wouldn't it be more preferable to have less evil? Like, just, like I don't really care. Like, who, like, who's to say that wouldn't be more preferable? I personally would like a world where, okay, sure, there's no Mother Teresa's. There's no, um, you know, uh, what's that little dummy's name? That little fucking activist. That little Swedish, Swedish berry. What's her fucking name? That little Swedish meatball. What's her dumbass name? 
I don't know, the little social activist, I can't think of her, Gretchen Van Helsing, whatever her name is, you know, the environmentalist. Let me look, let me look it up. I want to make a point. Uh, social, social uh, environmentalist, Sweden. Sweden. Gretchen, Greta, Greta Garbo, what's her fucking name? Diddly do, da dum, diddly do. Greta Thunberg. <laughs> you know, who's to say that a world without Greta Thunberg wouldn't be more preferable to a world where there's just like no evil in general? I'd take that any day of the week. Get rid of her. Keep, uh, just keep it calm, collected, and cool in general, right? And it's also like um, in regards to the why does evil exist argument. Okay, well, evil exists as an artistic standpoint, you know? If it wasn't for evil, art couldn't really exist. Like in like the way that Nigel Warburton ex describes it in the book, he says, um, you know, when you're listening to classical music or any type of music really, there's usually like, you know, a, a, a procession, a procession of chords, you know, and then there's some dissonance, you know, like there's some kind of um, unresolved tension, which eventually gets resolved and it brings the musical piece to a orgasmic crescendo or something like that. Right. You know, there's like, um, you know, tension. It's kind of like suspense. You're watching a great film. There's got to be a little bit of a tension, a little bit of a disturbance to make it interesting for the audience at times. Right. So it's like, okay, the artistic view is that evil highlights artistic meaning. Right? We can only enjoy the beauty of the world in contrast to the evil. You know, light and darkness, peaks and valleys. Well, some of the argument against that is, well, that type of beauty, it must not be... It must be beyond human comprehension because like the example that Nigel Warburton gives is like, okay, you see a dead soldier trapped in barbed wire. What kind of person would look at that and be like, oh, wow, it really highlights the beauty of this um, war field that we're all on. Oh, it really highlights the beauty of this charming foxhole to see a dead soldier splayed out there um, on the fucking barbed wire. You know, it's really kind of a strange. It's really for unhuman eyes, any rational feeling human eye. How would you look at that and see the beauty in it? The strange comparison. And also, number two, it lends credence to. OK, so if the purpose of evil is to highlight the beauty of the world, that sounds more like the work of a sadist more than it sounds like the work of a omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient, all-loving God, right? Sounds more like a sadist. So there's some of the criticism there in regards to that, right? And, you know, to the question of evil, there's also the free will defense, right? God has given humans free will. You know, we are free to do as we choose. Well, that assumes that, you know, 
the world that we're programmed in, um, a lot of people believe that we are a sum of our of our experiences. We are sums of our experiences. What we do is a relation to our overall experience. So basically, in some sense, every action we make has already been predetermined because we're programmed by the sum of our experiences. You know, who we are, what we've been through, some people can believe is already pre-programmed. So it's like, where's the free will in that? Right? That's an argument, whether we believe it or not. And um, also, why couldn't an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God program us to have free will, but to always choose to be good? Right? God is all-powerful. God is omnipotent, omniscient. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. Why couldn't God program us to be, um, you know, for the good? Right? Why wouldn't he program us to like, okay, yeah, we, he or she, why wouldn't he or she program us to, okay, well, we see what is good, what is bad, but we're going to make the good decision 100% of the time. Why couldn't God do that? That's a criticism of the, the, the free will defense. Right. And then there comes like miracles into the whole. Does God exist? Good and evil. Does God exist? Good and evil. Then there comes the question of like miracles. Right. All right. Well, miracles are based on like, you know, a law of nature being broken in a seemingly divine intervention type of manner. Right. There's a law of nature. It seems to have been broken by divine intervention. That is what people generally describe as a miracle, define as a miracle. And, you know, there's benefits to the law of nature, you know, like, for example, a lack of regularity in life could make it impossible to live. If like every time you do something, you get a conflicting result. How would we know how to make sense? If like you step off, if you step off a cliff and you don't fall to the ground and die, how do we make sense of a world where it's like, okay, sometimes you fall off a cliff and sometimes you don't, then you wouldn't know what to do, how to act, right? If only 50% of the time when you put your hand on fire, you get burnt, if only 50% of the time you get burnt when you touch flame, how would we know how to relate with nature so the laws of nature exist in a sense as cruel as they are as a checks and balance type of situation right so we depend on the laws of nature to make sense of the world you know it would be pretty difficult to live otherwise right but um you know let me uh let me see here. But in regards to miracles, like divine intervention is the normal course of events, right? Uh, never mind that, sorry. Um, 
So to contrast, to contradict the idea of miracles, it's like, well, it's improbable something could be thought of as a miracle when the overwhelming evidence is to the contrary, right? That is some of the criticism to miracles where it's like, okay, well, is it really divine intervention? Because, you know, somebody might rise from the dead. You know what I mean? Somebody might be declared clinically dead. And it's possible that they may rise. I don't know. Something happens. Some strange, unexplained situation happens. Like, all of a sudden, they just their heart starts beating again. There's been cases of that, you know? But... You know, they come back from the brink of death. But there's so much evidence to the contrary that, like, when you die, you die. And that wasn't a miracle. That was more like a freak occurrence. You know? It's like when there's so much proof of the contradictory, there's so much proof to the contrary, some people believe that we should be very weary of miracles, very leery of them, you know? And there's also, like, the idea of, like, psychological factors, you know? The overwhelming sense of emotion somebody might feel at a hospital at the side of their loved one's deathbed, and they're praying, and they're praying, and, oh, God, save my grandfather. You know, he's only 95 years old, and you're praying, and you're crying to God, then all of a sudden... <laughs> Oh, grandpa's back from the dead. Oh my God, it's a miracle. There's emotional, psychological factors to things, you know. It's a heated moment. There's a tense thing going on. Maybe what you're seeing is not a miracle as much as it's your emotions getting swept up with you. You know what I mean? And like, uh, you know, and also like religion cancels a lot of that out. Because it's like, okay, well, if a miracle does occur, well, what God caused the miracle? You know, was it Buddha? Was it fucking Allah? Was it Christ? Was it, um, you know, Hercules? Was it fucking Zeus? Like, who, who caused the miracle? So there becomes the question of, like, does do miracles cancel out religion? You know? Whew. It's a mind tease. So, you know, we talked about, you know, arguments for the existence of God. We talked about, um, you know, the problem of evil. We talked about miracles. So then we come to a point where, well, where, what does this all mean? Well, some people believe that, you know, there's an argument which is called loosely the gambler's argument. Which is basically, you stand to gain more by belief, so believing in God is better. The chances and odds of you gaining from belief versus non-belief are greater. So why not believe in God? The odds are better, you know? If you believe in God, you stand to gain eternal life. If you don't believe in God, well, you stand to lose, right? Well, criticism of that argument is like, okay, well, you can't just choose to believe, right? 
Like belief is something that is in your heart. It's ingrained very deeply. Like for example, if, if, if you're to tell me that come tomorrow, I'm going to believe that pigs fly. I can tell myself I believe that all I want, but I know that pigs don't fly. In my heart, I believe that pigs don't fly. So I could pretend to believe that pigs fly, but at the end of the day, you really don't believe, right? So there's the criticism to that. It's like, you can't just choose to believe. And number two, um, some people would deem that inappropriate. You know, like it's inappropriate to have a bet on whether or not God exists, you know? And furthermore, there might be a thought or a belief or a sentiment that God may take pleasure in casting you into eternal damnation for your for your inappropriate attitude to the situation. Like you're trying to get one over on God, you know? I'm going to play the odds against God, you know? Like God might take offense to that and take pleasure in sending you off to meet the devil, so to speak, right? And that all ties in with like, okay... Well, it doesn't really tie. Well, it ties into the idea of like, okay, well, what about just the the argument of non-realism, which is like, okay, we make this mistake that religion, um, we make this we make this mistake that God is something separate from or God and humankind are connected as one. Whereas like the non-realism belief is we, th- Oh yeah. Like basically religious ceremony brings forth the highest in human morals. So basically the non-realism belief is like, okay, well God is not to be something to thought of as like well-defined. This one's a little tricky. Like God we make the mistake when we think of God as something existing apart from humans, you know? When really religious ceremony is to bring forward the best moral values of humankind, right? So we shouldn't think of God as something wholly separate from us and, you know, something independently existing. It's, it's more so religion, religion ideas, values, moral insight is what's invaluable, not so much God, right? That's the non-realism belief. And the criticism of that is, well, well, it kind of lends itself to a veiled atheism, a non-belief in a higher power, right? To say that, okay, well, religion isn't to be taken literally. It's to be said that we get moral value from religion, but it's not literal. God doesn't actually exist. It's more so just the moral value. That's the non-realism argument. And the contradiction to that is, well, it's basically veiled atheism, so to speak. And that brings forth the idea of faith. Like, okay, belief in God isn't abstract. It's intellectual speculation rather than personal commitment. You know, it's, it's that... You know, faith isn't this abstract intellectual thing where we sit around and um, 
you know, okay, I, I'm going to take this little piece and that little piece, but none of that, none of this. Like, it's really about personal commitment, what you feel inside and what you're willing to personally commit. You know, that's some of the idea behind um, belief, faith, rather faith. And now finally we come to death. Ooh. Especially in the time of COVID-19, people are scared to death. And, um, you know, can't hurt to give it a couple moments of consideration. Am I right? So it's like, okay, if we are no longer around to face harm, can it harm us? You know, is it rational? Is it irrational to be afraid of death? Because if we're no longer around to be harmed by death, what is there to fear, right? Is it irrational to be afraid of death, right? That's a valid point. Well, the contradiction to that is like, oh, and furthermore, sorry, furthermore, um, we don't contemplate our non-existence before birth. So why should we contemplate our non-existence after death, right? You're not so worried about what you were doing as a fucking spermioid, a spermioid. Like, were you concerned about what you were doing in your dad's nutsack? You weren't that concerned. Why are we so concerned about what happens after death if we weren't so concerned about what happened before death. So these are the questions that arise. Is fear of death irrational? Well, the contradiction, the, the argument, the criticism would be, well, that assumes that the afterlife isn't bad, right? What if there is something to fear? Maybe you're a horrible person and hell awaits you in the afterlife. That's a rational reason to fear death. What if there is an afterlife and... You know, you are potentially going to be cast into hell, eternal damnation. Perhaps death is something rational to be feared, right? You know, questions, queries, and qualms. And, you know, so obviously death, it, it bears the question of immortality. Okay. One of the questions being, would immortality be tedious? You know, isn't it the finality of life that gives life its meaning? The idea that the beauty of spring is, it's almost like the artistic argument. The beauty of spring is so valuable because we know the looming destruction of winter, right? So it's like, the finality of death is what gives life meaning. So would immortality be tedious? Well, a criticism, the argument to that would be, well, an all-powerful, all-knowing God obviously wouldn't he or she be able to create eternal paradise? The worry of boredom, tedium, wouldn't God be able to fix that in the eternal afterlife? You know? So yes, that is pretty much the summation of the first chapter of Nigel Warburton. Nigel Warburton's very interesting book, um, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. Those are some of the questions regarding um, does God exist? You know, the arguments for does God exist, the problem of evil, miracles, um, death immortality, major concepts. And 
you know, I hope I gave you a fun, interesting kind of summation, introduction to some of those ideas. Obviously, check out the book or further readings wherever you can on this information. Um, and definitely hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, does God exist? What are your thoughts on the arguments for the existence of God, against the, against the existence of God, um, the problem of evil, miracles, immortality, death, you know? What is your thought, you know? It's a big, 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 it's like the question for the ages. Does God exist? Please do hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. And again, you know, I'll put on some information for you. If you want to do catch this book, check out this book, Nigel Warburton, Philosophy, The Basics. I'll link you some information, okay? So yeah, definitely uh, get at me in regards to that. And what I'm doing for now is I'm just moving forward, healthy, hopeful, hallelujah, keeping my mind spinning, keeping my body uh, grinning. And, um, you know, all in a day's work, folks. Happy quarantine to ya. It's your old chuckle buddy, guess who? Jonathan Ramcharan, reporting live for duty on this magnificent April 25th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Does God exist? Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. You can catch me on multiple platforms, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, my website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. All right? If you're enjoying the show, please do share with a motherfucker. You know, share it to a friend, link me to a friend, sharing's caring. All right, folks. Till next time, you live it, you love it, you realize it. All right? Peace. Thank <laughs> you.